Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 2 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 4, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth of York. Chapter 1, Part 2 If the Princess Elizabeth had not manifested decided repugnance to the addresses of her uncle, she might, perhaps, have met with better treatment than consignment to a distant fortress. Yet in the face of this harsh usage, Sir George Buck, the apologist for Richard III, has had the hardihood to affirm that she was so desirous of marrying her uncle as to be anxious to hasten the death of her aunt. In confirmation of this assertion, he adduces an infamous letter, which, he says, he saw in the cabinet of the Earl of Arundel, among the Howard papers, addressed by the Princess Elizabeth to the Duke of Norfolk, Richard's great supporter. Buck pretends that she, in this letter, solicited the good offices of the Duke of Norfolk, in her favor, adding, that the king was her joy and maker in this world, and that she was his in heart and thought. So far Buck affects to quote her words, but he adds, in a most uncandid manner, she hinted her surprise at the duration of the queen's illness, and her apprehensions that she would never die. Why did not Buck quote the very words of the princess, that all the world might judge how far the expression, he calls a hint, extended? Meantime, this letter has never been seen to the present hour, and Buck is too violent a partisan, and too unfaithful an historian, to be believed on his mere word. Persons often act inconsistently in respect to the characters of others, but never in regard to their own. During many trials, the retiring conduct of Elizabeth bore fully out her favorite motto, which consisted of the words, humble and reverent. Nor is it probable that her sweet and saintly nature should have blazed out in one sentence of a letter into all the murderous ambition that distinguished her father and uncles, and then subsided forever into the ways of pleasantness and peace. If this princess had had a heart capable of cherishing murderous thoughts against her kind aunt, Queen Anne, she would have shown some other symptoms of a cruel and ungrateful nature. She certainly did not. Therefore, it is unjust to condemn her on a supposed hint in a letter which no one but an enemy ever read. While our princess is incarcerated in her northern prison, it is needful to bestow a few pages on the paladin appointed to her rescue. The romantic incidents of the early life of our first Tudor sovereign are, indeed, little known. Henry Tudor was the son of Edmund, Earl of Richmond, and Margaret Beaufort, only child of John, Duke of Somerset. His mother was little more than thirteen when he was born at Pembroke Castle, June twenty-fifth, 1456. Margaret has thus prettily recorded the date of his birth in one of her letters, 
for says the proud and happy mother it was on this day of saint anne that i did bring into the world my good and gracious prince and only beloved son edmund tudor survived but till the succeeding november and his countess margaret afterwards the pride of english matrons the most virtuous as well as the most learned lady in the land was left a widow and a mother at fourteen with a little earl of five months old in her arms whom she had to rear and protect amidst all the horrors of a civil war which had just begun to rage when her husband died when the infant earl of richmond was about three years old he was presented by his fond young mother to his great-uncle henry the sixth who solemnly blessed him and placing his hand on the child's head said this pretty boy will wear the garland in peace for which we so sinfully contend an oracular saying carefully treasured by the young mother of the boy and afterwards remembered by his party to his advantage soon after the little earl was taken under the protection of his uncle jasper earl of pembroke and as he was the next heir through his mother to the whole ambitious race of somerset who were filling england with their seditious efforts to be recognized as legitimate branches of the royal line of lancaster the boy was conveyed to the remote castle of pembroke for his personal security from the inimical house of york he was not yet five years old when his only protector jasper tudor was forced to fly from the lost field of mortimer's cross pembroke castle was stormed by sir william herbert one of edward the fourth's partisans and the earldom of pembroke was given to him as a reward the poor little earl of richmond was found in the castle not altogether friendless for he was protected by philip ap howell whom he in after life described gratefully as our old servant and well-beloved nurior an expression which plainly shows that henry had a welshman by way of a nurse the new earl of pembroke was a just and brave man and moreover had a good and merciful lady for his helpmate so far from hurting the little prisoner whom they had seized with his uncle's castle the lady herbert took him to her maternal arms and brought him up with her own family and in all kind of civility well and honorably educated him the excellence of this good deed will be better appreciated when it is remembered that henry was the heir of the dispossessed earl of pembroke and consequently was considered by some to have more right to the castle than the herberts the family of lady herbert consisted of three sons and six daughters companions of henry's childhood and with the lady maud herbert there is reason to suppose he had formed a loving attachment when he was fourteen his generous protector lord pembroke was illegally murdered by warwick's faction after banbury fight young tudor still remained with his maternal friend lady herbert till another revolution in favor of lancaster restored jasper tudor once more to his earldom and castle who with them took repossession of his nephew but the few months jasper was able to hold out the castle was a period of great danger the nephew and uncle narrowly escaped destruction from a plot contrived by roger vaughan a bold and crafty marchman belonging to a fierce clan of his name vowed vassals of the mortimers and their heirs jasper had the satisfaction of turning the tables on roger by cutting off his head but he was soon after besieged in the castle by morgan thomas who according to the orders of edward the fourth 
dug a trench round the fortress, and would soon have captured its inmates, if David Thomas, brother to the besieger, had not taken pity on the Tudors, and favored their escape to Tenby, whence with a few faithful retainers they embarked for France, and were cast by a tempest on the coast of Bretagne. Duke Francis II received them hospitably, and for two or three years they lived peacefully, yet under some restraint. But the existence of young Henry Tudor disquieted Edward IV, though in the very height of victorious prosperity, and he sent Stillington, Bishop of Bath, the ready tool for any iniquity, on a deceitful mission to the court of Bretagne, offering Henry the hand of his eldest daughter with a princely dower, and to Jasper restoration of his earldom, if they would return to England and be his friends. Henry and Jasper were both deceived so far as to be placed without restraint in the hands of the English deputation, and the whole party was waiting at St. Malos for a favorable wind, when the Duke of Bretagne was seized with a sudden qualm of conscience. He sent his favorite, Peter Landois, to inform young Henry privately that he would be murdered if he trusted himself on board Edward's ships. It seems Edward IV had bargained to pay the Duke of Bretagne a large sum directly his unfortunate guests were safe in the hands of Stillington, and this was the way the Duke contrived to keep the purchase money and save their lives. The Earl of Richmond had caught a quotidian ague at St. Malo's, and was lying in such a state of suffering under its feverish fits, that he troubled himself very little with the message of the Duke, but the moment his affectionate uncle heard it, he summoned his faithful servants, who ran with the sick youth in their arms to the sanctuary of St. Malo's, nor could any promises of Stillington induce them to come out. Edward the Fourth complained bitterly to Duke Francis of the trick he had played him, but if he had bought the life of the poor youth, he well deserved to lose his money. Meantime, the Countess Margaret, the mother of the young Earl, remained at the court of Edward without exciting any great jealousy. She had married Lord Henry Stafford and was again a widow. Edward the Fourth gave her to his vowed partisan, Lord Stanley. Her husband's esteem for her virtues was so great that she was able to inspire him with a very fatherly interest for her poor exiled boy, from whom she had been so cruelly divided since his infancy. From the hour when young Richmond was placed in the sanctuary at St. Malo's, he was virtually a prisoner. As Henry considered that his life was in great danger, he resolved to render himself capable of taking orders as a last refuge from the malice of Edward IV. With this intention, as well as for the purpose of whiling away the heavy hours of captivity, he became a proficient in Latin, and all the learning of the times. The danger passed away, and the learning remained to his future benefit. Yet Richmond and his uncle must have led a harassing life for many years during their exile, nor had they always the comfort of being together, for the records of Vans prove that after being some time in an honorable state of restraint, in the capital of Bretagne, attended by guards yet treated as princes, on some suspicion of their intention to withdraw themselves, Henry and his uncle were arrested at the request of Edward the Fourth. Jasper was confined in the castle of Jocelyn, and young Henry in the castle of Elvin. The Bretons to this day point out one of the towers of Elvin as his prison. The death of his great prosecutor, Edward the Fourth, caused an amelioration of his captivity, 
a few months open to him, an immediate vista to the English crown. After the destruction of the heirs of York had been effected by their murderous uncle, Richard III, Christopher Yearswick came to Bretagne, with a proposal from the Countess Margaret to her son, that he should marry the rightful heiress of the realm, Elizabeth of York. Henry immediately requested an interview with the Duke of Bretagne, to whom he confided his prospects, and received from him promises of assistance and permission to depart. Soon after came a gentleman, Hugh Conway, bringing great sums from his mother, with directions to effect a landing as soon as possible in Wales. Henry sailed for England with forty ships furnished him by the Duke of Bretagne. According to general history, he heard of Buckingham's failure and returned immediately. Yet the local traditions of Wales declare that he landed and remained in concealment for several months at Tremostin in Flintshire. In the ancient castle of Tremostin in Flintshire is a great room at the end of a long gallery, said by the tradition of the place to have been the lodging of Henry the Seventh, when the Earl of Richmond, who resided secretly in Wales at the time he was supposed to have been in Bretagne. For, adds Pennant, it is observable that none of our historians account for a certain period in Henry's life after he had departed from the protection of the Duke of Bretagne. While Henry was thus lurking at Moston, a party of Richard's forces arrived there on suspicion and proceeded to search the castle. He was about to dine, but had just time to leap out of a back window and make his escape by means of a hole, which is to this day called the King's Hole. With Henry's visit to Wales was probably connected the report mentioned in history of his desire to marry Lady Catherine Herbert, the youngest daughter of his former generous protectors. After the defeat of Buckingham, he for a time lost all hope of alliance with the royal Elizabeth. His former love, Maud Herbert, had been married to the Earl of Northumberland, but Henry sent word that he wished to have her younger sister. The messenger, however, met with the most unaccountable impediments in his journey, and before he could communicate with Lady Northumberland, new schemes were agitated for his union with the Princess Elizabeth, and Henry was forced to sacrifice his private affections. The people imagined that the union of the rival roses was arranged by Providence for the purpose of putting an end to the long agonies England had endured, on account of the disputed succession. Great crowds went to behold a natural prodigy of a rose bush, which produced blossoms, while the rival colors of the rose of York and Lancaster were for the first time seen blended. This the English considered as an auspicious omen. It must have been about this time that the ring and letter arrived from Elizabeth of York, which renewed her engagement to him. In Brereton's narrative, he declares he met the Earl of Richmond at Beggar's Monastery. This was twenty-eight miles from Rennes, conveniently situated for intercourse with England, where there were two convents connected with that of beggars on the Earl of Richmond's own estate in Yorkshire. Brereton found the Earl of Richmond sitting at the butts in an archery ground. He was dressed in a black velvet surcoat, which reached to the knees. He described him as long-faced and pale in complexion. He was in company with Lord Oxford, who had just escaped to him from his long confinement in Homs. Lord Ferrers of Groby, who was the same person as the Marquis of Dorset, Elizabeth's brother, likewise an attendant of the name of Lee. 
French authors affirm that Henry was in love with Lee's daughter, Catherine, but that the girl gave up his promise for fear of ruining his fortunes. Henry received Brereton civilly. He kissed the ring of rich stones that Elizabeth had sent him, but, with the characteristic caution which ever distinguished him, remained three weeks before he gave him an answer. Once more Henry was in imminent peril, from the treachery of the Breton government. Duke Francis fell dangerously ill, and his minister, Landois, covenanted to deliver the earl into the hands of Richard III. As it was, Richmond, who was near the French border, had to ride for his life, and with only five persons, arrived safe at Angers, from whence he visited the French court, and received promises of assistance from the Lady Regent, sister to Charles VIII. He followed the royal family of France to Paris, where he renewed a solemn oath to marry Elizabeth of York, if he could dispossess the usurper. And the day after this oath, all the English students at the University of Paris tendered him their homage as King of England. He likewise received a message from Duke Francis, who, having recovered his health, disclaimed the iniquities of Landois, and promised Henry assistance for his fresh descent on England. The Lady Regent of France advanced him a sum of money, but required hostages for its payment, upon which Henry very adroitly left in pledge the persons of his intended brother-in-law, the Marquis of Dorset, whose late communications with England had excited some suspicions. Richmond reckoned himself a prisoner during the whole of his connection with Bretagne. He told me, says Comines, just before his departure, that from the time he was five years old, he had either been a fugitive or a captive, and that he had endured a fifteen years' imprisonment from Duke Francis, in whose hands he had fallen by extremity of weather. Indeed, I was at the court of Bretagne when he and his uncle were first seized. Edward the Fourth paid the Duke of Bretagne a yearly sum for his safe keeping, and, if the extreme poverty of Richard the Third had permitted him to continue the pension, it is to be feared the crown of England and the hand of its heiress, the lovely Lady Bessie, would never have been won by Henry Tudor. On the 1st of August, Henry sailed with the united fleets of France and Bretagne from Harfleur, on his chivalric enterprise to win a wife and crown. His navy met with no interruption, for Richard's poverty kept the English ships inactive. Henry's fleet safely made Milford Haven in seven days, but he landed with his uncle Jasper at a place called Dale, some miles from his armament. When his uncle first set foot on his native shore, the people received him joyfully with these significant words. Welcome, for thou hast taken good care of thy nephew. A sarcastic reflection on the conduct of Richard III to his nephews. This welcome was indicative of the public feeling, for Richmond was greeted everywhere on his route from Milford as a deliverer, and as far as Shrewsbury, every town threw open its gates for his admittance. His old friend Lord Herbert, though not openly his partisan, secretly favored his march, but Gilbert Talbot, with the bold decision of character so well described by Brereton, joined him directly at the head of the vassalage of his nephew, the Earl of Shrewsbury. So did Sir John Savage. Henry now pressed forward for the Midland counties, suffering in mind doubts respecting the conduct of the Stanleys, although he received the most comforting messages from his mother. At last he arrived at Tamworth. Lord Stanley was encamped at Alderstone, and Richard III was advancing to Leicester. 
On the evening of the 20th of August, Henry had a very narrow escape. He went out from his camp at Tamworth, and met Lord Stanley by assignation in the dark, in a field near Atherstone Moor. Here Stanley explained to his son-in-law, how necessary it was for him to appear Richard's friend, till the very moment when the battle joined, or the loss of his son's life would be the consequence, since Richard would not excuse him from his palace duty without he left his heir, George Lord Strange, as a hostage. But the axe was even now suspended over George's head, and would fall on the slightest symptoms of revolt shown by the Stanleys. Had Richmond been wholly satisfied, he surely would have got a guide from Stanley back to his camp. For on his return he lost his path, and wandered in the greatest peril of being captured by Richard's scouts. He dared not inquire his way, lest his foreign accent should betray him. At last rendered desperate, he knocked at the door of a lone hut on Atherstone Moor, and finding therein the master, a simple shepherd, was by him refreshed and afterwards kindly guided to Tamworth where he rejoined his forces, not before his army had been thrown into consternation at his absence. That very evening, at sunset, King Richard entered Leicester, mounted on a magnificent white courser, and clad in the same suit of burnished steel armor he wore at Tewkesbury. On his helmet was placed a regal crown, which he had worn ever since he joined his military muster at Nottingham. His countenance was stern and frowning, his manner that of high command, as he rode surrounded by the pomp of war, in the van of the finest cavalry forces in Europe. His army, amounting to 13,000 men, was sufficient to have crushed Richmond's petty band, but that its strength was hollow, with the principles of disaffection and revolt. King Richard slept at the principal inn at Leicester, known since by the name of the Blue Boar, because Leicester Castle was ruinous and uninhabitable. The room in which he passed the night is fresh in the memory of many persons, for the inn was very recently destroyed by the erection of a row of small houses. It was a ghostly Gothic chamber. He slept on his military chest, in the shape of a bedstead, and the discovery of his treasure a hundred years afterwards occasioned a horrid murder. Early in the morning of the day preceding Bosworth fight, Richard III left Leicester by the south gate, at the head of his cavalry. A poor old blind man, who had been a wheelwright, sat begging near the bridge. As the king approached, he cried out, that if the moon changed twice that day, which had changed once in the course of nature that morning, King Richard would lose life and crown. He hinted at the secret disaffection of the Percy, who had married Henry of Richmond's old love, Maud Herbert. As Richard rode over Leicester Bridge, his left foot struck against a low wooden post. His head shall strike against that very pile, said the oracular beggar, as he returns this night. On the evening of the 21st, the two rival armies encamped on the appropriately named heath of Redmore, near Bosworth. Richard went out at twilight to reconnoitre. He found a sentinel fast asleep at the outpost. The prompt tyrant stabbed him to the heart with these stern soldierly words, I found him asleep, and I leave him so. Such was the usurper's preparation for that fearful night of unrest, of which Shakespeare has made such poetical use. Our chroniclers more briefly describe the troubled slumber of Richard, on the last night of his existence, by saying that, in his sleep, he was most terribly pulled and hailed by devils. They report, moreover, that other agents were busy in the camp. 
besides these diabolical phantasma of the tyrant's overcharged brain, for the morning light showed that some daring hand had placed a placard on the Duke of Norfolk's tent, containing these lines. Jockey of Norfolk, be not too bold, for Dickon thy master is bought and sold. Notwithstanding his ill rest, Richard was the next morning energetically active, reckoning on overwhelming Richmond at once by a tremendous charge of cavalry. Richmond must have possessed great moral courage to risk a battle, for his father-in-law was till the moment of onset dubious in his indications. At last, Lord Stanley and his brother Sir William joined Richmond's forces, and the odds were turned against the usurper. Yet the battle raged on Redmore Heath for more than two hours. King Richard made in person three furious charges, the last being the most desperate, after his friend, the Duke of Norfolk, was slain. When Richard, overthrowing all opposers, made his way to where Richmond's standard flew, in hopes of a personal encounter with his rival, he was borne away by numbers at the foot of the hill, near Amion Lays. His blood tinged the pretty brooklet which issues from the hill. It literally ran red that day, and to this hour, the common people refused to drink of its waters. The body of Richard was in a few minutes, plundered of its armor and ornaments. The crown was hidden by a soldier in a hawthorn bush, but was soon found and carried to Lord Stanley, who placed it on the head of his son-in-law, saluting him by the title of Henry the Seventh, while the victorious army sang Te Deum on the blood-stained heath. O oh, Redmore, then it seemed thy name was not in vain. It was in the memory of the picturesque fact that the red-buried hawthorn once sheltered the crown of England, that the house of Tudor assumed the device of a crown in a bush of the fruited hawthorn. The loyal proverb of, cleave to the crown, though it hang on a bush, alludes to the same circumstance. While these events were transacting, the royal maiden who was to prove the prize of the victor remained in the lonely halls of the Yorkshire castle of Sheriff Hutton, with no companion but its young and imbecile owner, her cousin Warwick. A sudden outburst of joy throughout the country, and the thronging of the population of the district about the gates of her prison, told Elizabeth that her cause had prospered, and that Richard was overthrown. Soon after came Sir Robert Willoughby, sent by the new king, Henry the Seventh from Bosworth, with orders to bring the Princess Elizabeth and her cousin to London, with all convenient speed. The princess commenced her journey directly, and was attended by a voluntary guard of the nobility and gentry of the counties, through which she passed, and many noble ladies likewise came to wait upon her. In this state she was escorted to London, and consigned to the care of her mother, Queen Elizabeth, at Westminster Palace. Henry the Seventh, in the meantime, set out from Leicester, and by easy journeys arrived in the metropolis. The Lord Mayor and citizens met him at Shoreditch, and recognized him as King of England. He came not invested with military terrors, like a conqueror, not even as an armed cavalier on horseback, but made his entry, to the surprise of everyone, in a covered chariot, a mode of traveling never before used, excepting by females. Without, adds Bacon, it was considered necessary so to convey a traitor, or enemy of the state, dangerous for the people to recognize. His own poet, Bernard Andreas, who had accompanied him from Bretagne, welcomed him to London at Shoreditch, with Latin verses written in his praise. The king went direct to St. Paul's, 
where Te Deum was sung, and he offered his banners, not those taken at Bosworth, but three, on which were figured his devices of the fiery dragon of Cadwalder, a dun cow, and the effigy of St. George. He then retired to his lodging prepared at the palace of the Bishop of London, close to St. Paul's churchyard. While he remained the guest of the bishop, he assembled his privy council, and renewed to them his promise of espousing the Princess Elizabeth of York. The discontents of the Yorkist party commenced from this era. They found with indignation that Henry chose to be recognized by Parliament as the independent sovereign of England, without the least acknowledgment of the title he derived from his betrothment with their princess. His coronation took place soon after, without the association of the princess in its honors. Elizabeth, it is said, suffered great anxiety from the varied reports of his intended marriage, either with the heiress of Bretagne, or Lady Catherine Herbert. In the course of these mediations, she recalled to memory that her father had, in her infancy, offered her in marriage to this comely prince. Perhaps she did not know the evil intentions of that treaty. At all events, she now persuaded herself that she was acting according to the sanction of her deceased parent. It was near Christmas, and no preparations had been made for the marriage of the royal pair. When the House of Commons, on their grant to the king, of tonnage and poundage for life, added to it a petition, that he would take to wife and consort the Princess Elizabeth, which marriage they hoped God would bless, with a progeny of the race of kings. The members of the assembled houses of Parliament then rose up and bowed to the king, as a sign of their earnest cooperation in this wish. The king replied, that he was very willing so to do. He might have added, for the further satisfaction of all malcontent at the delay, that the prevalence of the two great plagues, of poverty and pestilence, were reasonable impediments to gorgeous and crowded ceremonials, for the private records of the exchequer prove that there was not a doit in the royal purse, and the public annals show how severely the new disease called the sweating sickness, or Suter Anglicus, was devastating the metropolis. On the 10th of December, the Parliament was prorogued till the 27th of January by the Lord Chancellor, who announced that before its reassembling, the marriage of the King and the Princess Elizabeth would take place, from which time she was treated as queen. The great tournament was proclaimed, and magnificent preparations made for the royal nuptials. Elizabeth and Henry were within the prohibited degrees. To obtain a special dispensation was the work of time. But, in order to indulge the wishes of the nation for their immediate union, an ordinary dispensation was procured from the Pope's resident legate, and the royal pair united at Westminster, January 18th, 1486. Their wedding day was, in the words of Bernard Andreas, celebrated with all religious and glorious magnificence at court, and by their people with bonfires, dancing, songs, and banquets throughout all London. Cardinal Bouchier, a prelate, who was at the same time a descendant of the royal house of Plantagenet, and a prince of the church, was the officiating prelate at the marriage. His hand, according to the quaint phraseology of Fuller, who records the circumstance, held that sweet posy, wherein the white and red roses were first tied together. End of section two.
Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.